All right, church, good morning. I hope you all are doing well. Uh, We're about to, in a couple weeks, celebrate our fifth anniversary as a church. So I don't know if you know that, but we are a young church that believes very old things. And we've been in this city now for about five years. And and all the time I'm asked, why did you come? Which is a fair question. Why did you come to Winston-Salem? And and there's a lot of answers to that, right? People ask that because like, well, there is already 500 churches here, okay? (laughs) So why did you come? Why did a new church come to Winston-Salem? And there's lots of answers. Let me tell you a few of them. You might say, and these are all true. Well, you might say we came here because of the growth of the city. I don't know if you know this, the, church, the uh, city is supposed to grow by about 100,000 people in the next 10 or 15 years. Okay, well, that's exciting. Uh, some people go, you might want to come to Winston because of the revitalization of downtown, and that's certainly exciting. You may want to come to Winston simply because it is the fifth largest city in North Carolina. That's a fairly big deal. Uh, you, you might want to come to Winston-Salem because of the local businesses and the, the strong and growing local economy, and that's all very exciting. You might want to come to Winston because of the medical community. Well, anyway, those are all great reasons. And there are reasons we did come. There's other reasons we came. But I want to let you know that one of the main reasons that we came to this city was the college campuses. If you don't know this, maybe you're new to Winston, maybe you're just not aware that there are six, just in the heart of Winston, there are six different universities. We've got, of course, Forsyth Tech, our community college. We've got Wake Forest, a top 25 school. We've got Salem College, an all-girls school. We've got UNC School of the Arts, a artsy school, okay, a creative school. Uh, <clears throat> those of us who don't go there don't understand all that stuff, but that's what they do there. Uh, we, we've got... Um, We've got Carolina University, a Bible college. We've got Winston-Salem State, a historically black school. And so I want to let you know that, that we are completely about, among other things, reaching the college campus. We believe this, that if you reach the college campus today, you reach the world tomorrow. That only 1%, of, this is good to know too, 1% of the world goes to college. And, you know, that most people go to college for four years. Some of you will go to college for five or six years. Okay, congratulations. But uh, most of you will go to college for four years, and then you'll go somewhere else. And so, uh, well, you know, one of the reasons we had this Saturday night service that many people, hundreds of people are moving to is to create space, particularly on Sunday nights for all of the college students who are coming back. And so I just want to take a moment, pray for our college students. Because then let me tell you, we've got some college students in here today. We're going to have a lot here this evening. We, uh, we want you to look at college and not look back. We want you to look back on college and not regret how you spent your time in college. I talked to a lot of older Christians who they so regret how they spent those four years in college. You know, for, for, it's either, for, for, for Christians, it's either gonna be a spiritual greenhouse, you're gonna go back and go, I learned how to walk with God, I learned how to pray, I learned how to make disciples, I learned how to repent of sin, or you look back and go, ah, all of the things that I got addicted to and struggle with and are still trying to repent of are things I started in college. So we wanna meet these college students, meet them with the grace of God, meet them with the gospel, Let's take a moment to pray for them. And as they're, as they're all coming back to our city, uh, thousands of freshmen are moving into dorms all across our city. And we wanna meet them with the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray for our college students. We pray for um, the, our staff and our residents who are on the college campus. We, we pray for people going to the college campus and really bringing the kingdom and the cross with them and wanting to share Christ deeply with people and wanting to see people meet Jesus, be made into his disciples. And we know that all the college students in a few years are gonna be leaving and going to work all over the world. And we know that college students, the cement hardens in people's life in college and how they view God and how they view family and how they view sex and how they view money and how they view work. It's all almost formalized and finalized when they leave college. And we wanna be there to speak the truth of your word to these college students. We ask this in your name, amen. Well, you can type to or turn to, whether the Bible's on your lap or on an app, wherever you find your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter three. Here's what we're doing, guys. 
It's what we do every week. We walk through books of the Bible. If you're new, if you're visiting us for the first time, if you're watching online for the first time, uh, what we do is we walk through books of the Bible, and we, well, we've been doing this for five years. But in this series, we've been doing it for three weeks. The series is called Christ Culture Church. And what we're seeing and what we're learning, and we kind of already knew this, those of us who know our Bibles already knew this, that the problems of the early church are the problems of every church. And that the Corinthian church, which we're studying for you know, 10 or 12 weeks, uh, it's the messiest uh, church in the Bible, this letter that we're looking at in this church that, we're, that Paul's writing to. And they had all the same problems that we did. And here's the main problem, that the church, Christ died for the church so that the church would have a massive influence on the culture. So that anywhere you would find a healthy, vibrant church, it would transform and change that city, that community, and that culture. That's the hope. Now, what happens most places is the church isn't as healthy as it could be or should be. And guess what ends up happening? The culture ends up influencing the church way more than the church ends up influencing the culture. That's the problem in, in the Corinthian church. That's the problem in the American church is that most American Christians are exactly that. They're more American than they are Christian. And what we saw, and I can't go back and re-preach this and re-look at this, but if you want to go back and listen or go back and read, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul he basically says the main problem in the church is they're divided, right? And that's the main problem in your life. You're divided. There's things you want to do and you, know, you shouldn't do them and there's things that you should do and you don't want to do them and all that. You're, you're a divided person. And, and some of our families, they're dysfunctional and they're divided. Many of the churches you've been a part of in the past have been divided. Christians often get internally focused in fighting. And he's saying, guys, fix it. By the grace of God and by the gospel of God, you've got to be unified. And if you're not unified, you can't do anything else. Well, that was week one. We've got to be a unified church, unified church, not uniformity, but unified. Week two was the temptation of all Christians. And by the way, I know that everyone watching online and everyone in here is not a Christian, obviously, in a room this size. We've got seekers, we've got skeptics, we've got people who think they're Christians and they're not. We've got all that. But, but anyway, every Christian's temptation is going to be to diminish and to downplay the significance of Christ crucified for sinners. That's, that's the message, by the way, that we take to the college campus or to your coworkers or to your neighbors or to your friends and family. Christ crucified for your sin. That's it. We, t we, we, we don't minimize that message. We actually maximize that message. It's the most public thing about us. And then we trust the Holy Spirit to work in people's lives. Well, that was chapter one and two. And, and basically what Paul says at the end of chapter one and the end and all of chapter two, he says that basically, and this is good to know, the world's broken into two groups of people. That's it. Which is... And, and by the way, everybody's trying to break the world into two groups of people, right? There's Democrats and there's Republicans. There's vaccinated and not vaccinated. There's mask and no mask. There's people who think NASCAR is a sport and people who don't. <laughs> we need to laugh some, right? Yes. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to break the world into diff two different groups of people. Okay? And, and we're not saying that, that, that these distinctions aren't important. But that's what happens, right? There's oppressed and there's oppressor. There's white and there's black. There's healthy and there's sick. There's old and there's young. There's rich and there's poor. Of course. Those are not the most important distinctions in our life. Paul says the most important distinction is, do you understand Christ crucified? Is it beautiful to you or repulsive? Is it wise or is it foolish? Do you have the Holy Spirit or do you not? That's chapters one and two. Now in chapter three, if you'll look there with me, Paul makes a transition. Paul's logical. By the way, Christianity's logical. It makes sense. There's an order to it. There's, a, there's an internal logic to it. So Paul says, look, we are going to go from there's two types of people to there's two types of Christians. So you can think of it this way. Think of it this way. There's two types of humans, those who are trusting Christ and who are not. 
And then, believe it or not, and it's hard to believe, and the number one passage to talk about would be the passage we're looking at right here. But in 1 Corinthians 3, it appears that there's two types of Christians. Now, if there's, if there's ever a passage on being a quote, I don't really love this term, but if there's ever a, a quote unquote carnal Christian passage, we're in it today. And it's hard, and people have wrestled with this because you go, how can somebody, because what he's basically gonna say is there's two types of Christian, the type that's growing and the type that's not. The type that's fruitful and the type that's not. The type that's faithful and the type that's not. The, the, the type that's making war against sin and the type that's making peace with sin. You go, how's that possible? And we, and we wrestle with this because you read the scriptures and you go, how can you have the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead? How? And, and you can live in unrepentant sin. How's that possible? It seems to be it is possible for a season. People go, how can you understand the significance of the cross of Jesus Christ? How can you stare at that and trust in that and have it not transform every area of your life over time? So this is a difficult passage, but I want us to look at it together. This is 1 Corinthians chapter three. We're gonna look at verse one together. 1 Corinthians chapter three, verse one, he says this. But I, brothers, and by the way, he's brothers, or you can say brothers and sisters, and, and this is how we know he's writing to Christians. Paul only uses this familial language with other believers. So here's what he's saying. But I, Christians, Christian family, Christian church, I could not address you as spiritual people. Now, I'd like to. Spiritual people is someone who's mature, someone who could disciple others, somebody who's growing and repenting and being fruitful and being faithful. He says, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. And then he gives us an image. He says, as infants in Christ. So here's, if you've got to leave early, let me give you the main message for today, okay? It, it rises right out of this passage, and it's very, very simple. It's, it's time to grow up, and it takes time to grow up. Both of those are true. I came here this morning to tell you it's time to grow up. It's time. Today. No more excuses. Start making plans. The most time wasted is the time getting started. It's time to grow up today. And there's a lot of grace, because it takes time to grow up. We know that, right? How long does it take to become an infant to an adult? For some of you, 30 years. <laughs> well, we, we would know at least, at least 16 to 18 years, right? That's what makes humans unique, is how long it takes us to develop, how much it takes us to leave and to become our own person and our own adult. We understand that. But it's time to grow up. What this city needs, what this church needs, is spiritual men and spiritual women. Now, it's okay to be a spiritual infant if you're a brand new believer. I have some, there's some people in the church like that and they're very excited and they're brand new believers and they wanna grow and they've got lots of questions and they're brand new believers and we love that. But what you don't wanna be, and you know this, you don't wanna be an old infant. An old infant is goofy looking, <laughs> right? And so the whole idea is that we need to grow up. Now, we need to move from, you can write it a couple different ways. We need to move from being immature to mature. From being an infant to being an adult. And again, it takes a lot of time and there is a lot of grace, but every Christian needs to grow up. And th this church, just so you know, this church will only be as strong as the individual Christians in it. This church will only be as mature as the individual Christians in it. And everybody makes their own decision to grow up. Now there's a word for this. And I told you, if you're a Christian, you need to, you're gonna get a new vocabulary. There's a couple new words. And then you're gonna need a dictionary for all the words that you've been defining wrongly in your life, okay? And one of the biggest words you need to get, and I'm gonna give you a word that I know you can, you know, it's the word, it's the word sanctification. 
And if you can order a venti caramel macchiato with extra cream, you can remember sanctification. Sanctification is progressively and practically becoming more holy. Sanctification is something that only happens for Christians. It's I become who God already says that I am. That's what sanctification is. It's becoming, I'll say it a couple different ways. And you just take whatever definition works for you and then you just write it down and you just, you own it. It's uh, becoming the godliest version of yourself. It's becoming more and more like Jesus. It's learning more and more to say no to sin and yes to Christ. That's what sanctification is. And it's growing in maturity. Now here's the interesting thing. Maturity is a problem in the church and in the culture. It's a, it's, a, it's a problem in the church because people are remaining spiritual infants. It's a problem in the culture because people are not growing up. So there's a, there's a guy named Ben Sass. He wrote a very good book. I'd highly recommend it. It's called The Vanishing of the American Adult. It's a great book. And he basically writes about the crisis in our culture of not growing up, which is affecting everything. Interesting, interesting thing he shares that in 2016, one of the most tweetable hashtags in all of Twitter was hashtag adulting. <laughs> and, and he said, it was interesting, he was thinking about this, he said it was really interesting how the word showed up. So people would tweet something like this, it's Saturday and I had to do my laundry, hashtag adulting. <laughs> First time I paid my taxes, hashtag adulting. Have to work 40 hours a week with only two weeks of vacation, hashtag adulting. <laughs> and what was really, really interesting, he said, was people, and this was an interesting insight, most young people, millennials and younger, they look at being an adult as a, as a performance, as an act, as something that's super awkward and uncomfortable and they're watching themselves doing it and it feels completely unnatural like they weren't ready for it. And so what we have to do as the church, we have to show the dignity and the calling to grow up and why it's actually a good thing to grow up. And so let me talk about this a couple different ways. First of all, we have to ask, what does it mean to mature? And there's three things, and people have been asking this question for a long time. And some of you are asking this question because I, I talk to a lot of you, and you're in your 50s, and you're in your 60s, and you're in your 70s, and the pain point in your life is your kids. You know, and it's like, well, you're, you're really upset because, and understandably so, because your kids aren't growing up. And you can't quite put on it. It's not just that they live in your basement. <laughs> Although that's part of it, you know? It's not just they want to stay on your healthcare plan forever. It's not all that, but there, there is some of that, but you're like, I just, what is it? Well, let me give you the three things that people have thought about this for a long time. Let me tell you the three things, and these are really helpful. They work in, they work in the physical world, they work in the spiritual world. They work in the seen realm, they work in the unseen realm. It, the three things that have to happen for you to mature, for you to grow up, and for your kids to grow up. Um, the first thing is, there's a transition in your life from play to work. That's the first sign of growing up. It's, I move from... Here's the way you do it. You move from toys to tools, right? What do kids have? They have lots of toys. Often what do young men have? Unfortunately, still lots of toys, <laughs> right? It's all about, look how many devices I have. Look how many hobbies I have. Look how many video game systems I have. Everything's about my next travel and my next you know, vacation. It's all about toys, it's not about tools. When you grow up, you go, I need tools. How do I get my budget together? I need tools. How do I date, court, marry a woman? I need tools. How do I do an interview? How do I put together a resume? How do I get a job? It's, there's a transition from I'm, the, I'm done talking about my rights. I'm done talking about what everybody else has to do for me. I'm going to start talking about my responsibility. See, we, the Bible teaches this. This is super important to understand. Labor creates leisure. Labor creates leisure. 
We live in a society where everybody wants leisure, right? This is one of the problems with COVID, what's happening. <clears throat> Nobody wants to go back to work. I mean, how many of us have gone somewhere? You're like, why is this place closed? And then there's like a sign on the door. Sorry, no one works here anymore. It's like, what? <clears throat> this happens all the time. And it's because people got used to not working and they got used to leisure without labor. The, so the fourth commandment is not just a commandment to rest. The Sabbath, it's, it's six days you will work, seventh day you get to rest. It's labor creates leisure. That's the biblical paradigm. Most young people think leisure should come before labor and I should have way more leisure in my life than labor. No, 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 no. If you're very successful and you're old, <laughs> usually those two things, then you get lots of leisure because of the amount of time you've put into labor. That's the way that it works. The second main transition that people need to make, so they need to move from an orientation toward toys to tools, an orientation toward play to work. The second major transition is an orientation from short-term thinking to long-term thinking. I mean, this is so profound. You can see this, right? I mean, this is, what had ta- this is also what it takes to grow up as a Christian. I st- it's like, well, I believe in heaven and hell. And I realize forever is a long time. And I have an eternal perspective. And I believe in a final judgment. And I believe in the resurrection of all people. It's like, okay, well, I'm starting to think long-term, right? When you become a Christian, you think, well, uh, maybe I should think about generations and legacy and lineage and destiny and family and... It's just, you start to have this long-term thinking. I mean, one of the definitions of a child is like they have no concept of time. They, they don't know, they, everything seems like it's forever, everything, right? One of the concepts of being childish is I'm impulsive. And I need, everything's immediate and instantaneous. And it's usually short-term cheap pleasure is what I get my life to, right? And people who don't grow up, that's what they do. They keep thinking about the impulsive and the instantaneous. You get this, you know this, this is it. This is what's so frustrating about some of your kids. This is why, honestly, you're, some of you are so frustrated with yourself because you're like, this is me. The third transition is a transition from self-centeredness to other-centeredness. This is part of what it means to grow up. You know this too. What it means to mature is, and it happens little by little, right? There's, there's phases. It takes time to grow up, right? Like what's a key step for like a four-year-old or three-year-old? It's like learn to, right? When, you're, when they're two, it's called parallel play. Play with others, but do your own thing. Three and four is learn to play together. Massive developmental step. There are other people who are not you and you need to learn to play with them. And you need to learn to collaborate, not just compete, compare, and try to conquer. Most people never learn this lesson. So, so in other words, a immature person says, somebody should take care of me. And, and a mature person says, there's gotta be someone for me to take care of. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of needs in the world and I could do something together about it if I put my life together. I could be useful to other people. So these are massive transitions that have to be made. Now, what he's saying is, look, if you look at me again at verse one, he says this. He said, but I, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So he gives this illustration of an infant. And he talks about how we're not growing up. Now, it's interesting. An infant is beautiful in general. Right? Every, everybody who's rightly oriented in the world is grateful for kids. And, and we, there's just something about a baby. We just love it. And if you don't know this, because... There's a lot of things we don't know anymore that used to be obvious to everybody all the time, everywhere. But, but one of the things that used to be obvious is what a child stands for. So no matter where you go, India, Africa, Australia, it doesn't matter. The ch- a child basically represents the same thing. A brand new born child represents the same thing everywhere. Hope. That's what it means. That's what every baby represents. Hope, potential, possibility. That's what a baby represents. And so, by the way, there's nothing wrong with being an infant in Christ if you're a brand new believer. In fact, it's what makes a church healthy. Every baptism, it's like, okay, new believer in Christ are a lot of those baptisms. 
It's like, wow, we're so, we're so grateful. It's okay, they're needy. That's okay. Okay, they're super dependent on others. That's okay. You know, okay, they've got lots of questions and they need others to take care of them. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with being an infant while you are an infant. But the call is to grow up. So what's interesting is, is that what we see in our society is what has been called by others Peter Pan syndrome. I don't know if you've heard of this. I didn't come up with it. It's, been, it's, the, it's that we actually don't want to grow up, right? It's interesting that we're talking about college students today. Guess where Neverland is today? The college campus. It's Neverland. I can have a man's opportunities with a boy's responsibility. And the university lets me do it because I'm paying them. Right? I mean, if you didn't know this, Peter Pan was a dystopia when it was written. Now, I know Disney took it and made it utopia. It was a dystopia. The idea that a boy would never grow up and he would be the leader of the Lost Boys? That's not a great job. Leader? What are you? I'm leader of who? The Lost Boys. We don't know where we're going. This is every fraternity president ever. <laughs> leader of the Lost Boys. I mean, think about it. It's actually very different. So, so why, is, why will Peter Pan not grow up, right? He won't. It's like, well, there's responsibility. Would you marry Wendy? No, she's a real woman. She's going to get old and she's going to want to have kids. So I'll settle for Tinkerbell. Not a real woman. What do most men do? Can't handle a real woman, like a website instead. Yikes. So we're still here. So it's the call to grow up. Now, what I want to do with the time left is I want to tell us how to grow up from Scripture because the, the rest of it is going to be the marks of moving toward maturity. This, right? So we got to kind of understand a lot of us have remained infants. We can be in the Lord for 20 years and still unfortunately be in the same place in our marriage. In the Lord for 20 years, same place in our Bible knowledge. You know, in the Lord for 20 years, struggling with the exact same sins in the exact same ways. So let me show you with the rest of our time how, how to grow up. So verse two, he tells us actually how to grow up. Here's what he says. He says, I fed you with milk. So he's using that infant illustration. Not with solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. So the first thing he's going to talk about is how do you grow spiritually? It's a healthy diet. And again, there's nothing wrong with an infant drinking milk. If we, if we were in here and there was some six-month-old and we looked over right now and he or she was, you know, there was a bottle and they were, you know, having milk and we, we think, oh, that's so cute and that's so natural. If a 20-year-old got on stage with a diaper and a bottle, <laughs> we'd be calling security immediately, okay? <laughs> because we know that there's, that there's a time for being in milk and then there's a time for moving from milk to meat or milk to solid food. Now, here's what's interesting. It's very simple, right? It's like, how do you grow? How do, how do you grow as a human? Well, I need a healthy diet. Well, how do you grow? How does your soul grow? Well, I need a healthy diet for my soul as well. What's interesting is we, are ups we live in this crazy culture where everything's backwards. We are so concerned with what we put in our body, but not very concerned with what we put in our soul, right? I mean, how many of you, you that's like, I only shop at Trader Joe's and Whole Foods. And actually, when I go there, I check all the packaging. I mean, it doesn't say non-GMO, cage-free, conflict-free, <laughs> grass-fed, all natural. I mean, who knows how many stickers are on these packages, right? You flip it over. If I can't pronounce it, I'm not buying it. If I can't pronounce the ingredients in it, it's like, oh, fair enough and fine. How many carbs, how many calories? It's like, okay, we're obsessed. Fair enough. Maybe we should be. But why are we so obsessed with what we put in our body and we care so little about what we put in our soul, right? I mean, what are the effects? Because just so you know, you, you know this, many of you do this. The average American basically watches three or four streaming shows a night while drinking till they fall asleep. That's it. Everybody does that. It's like, what are the long-term effects of feeding your soul Netflix shows 
for multiple hours every night for multiple decades. We don't know. This is a massive social experiment. You know, what is the effect of being just obsessed with sports? And it's always, I'm my next fantasy league, my next, I'm listening to this podcast. It's always about sports. It's the next game. What, what is the effect of feeding my soul? Again, these, are, these can be good things, but they can become God things and they become bad things. But it's like, okay, I'm feeding my soul with this. How many of us, it's on social media. I'm feeding my soul with everybody else's lives and I'm completely comparing and conquering. It's like, we don't know the effect of it. What we do know is that Paul says, it's time to move on and it's time to grow in your knowledge of God. And you've got to have a healthy diet. Now, he says, move from milk to solid food. So that's a big, if you don't know this, some of your parents, many of you are maybe our parents, the transition from milk to solid food is a big deal for your kids. Like it's a huge deal. It's like no one videotapes their second, their third and fourth kids, but, but we all film our first kids, right? So our first kid, you know, when they're, when they're transitioning from milk and they're gonna like, oh guys, we, you know, stirred up some peas and we stirred up some, smashed up some carrots for them. Everybody breaks out the iPhones because it's like, we're gonna watch them. They're gonna make this massive transition from milk to solid food. And it's, we watch them and it's like, gross. they can't get it. it. They make a weird face. They spit, it's, it's, a, it's a transition. That's what, ha- we have to make a transition from the simplest things and then the simplistic things of Christianity to the deeper things. We have to go just beyond the, our basic understanding of the cross, our basic understanding of faith, our basic understanding of grace. Our base- we have to go deeper, deeper into, not out of, but into all of these things. Um, now, the, there's a big step with kids, right? Because when you have kids, there's multiple, like, who knows how many, there's multiple milestones, right? They're out of diapers, it's like, praise the Lord. They're walking, praise the Lord. You know, they can babysit themselves, praise the Lord. They have a license, praise the Lord. Uh, and then those are like, those are growth. But, but one of the earliest ones is they can feed themselves. That's it. And we all, like, everybody's done this who's had a kid. It's like, well, throw like 50 Cheerios on their little plate and most of them will end up on the floor. <laughs> but what we're gonna watch is, and they're gonna learn, they're gonna learn how to feed themselves. In the same way, here's the big idea, that you have to learn how to feed yourself spiritually. That's it. Now, part of what I do, you know, if we keep using the food illustration, what I do all week is I, I cook a great meal for us all to have together. But this can't, you can't eat once a week. And so what you have to do is you have to feed yourself. Now, there's a lot of freedom. You're like, I, I want to read my Bible. Okay, great. I want to listen to my Bible. Great. I want to study it deeply. Great. I want to memorize it. Great. I want to read a commentary to help me. Great. You've got to figure out how do you get the Bible in you. That's your responsibility. Nobody can do it for you. So you have to do it for yourself. What this exists is to help to encourage you. One of the reasons we do expositional preaching, I walk verse by verse. So you can just go, well, he just read it and then said what it said and applied it. And I think I could do that. That's what you do all your, that's, and you just do that the rest of your life. Um, so he says that you have to learn how to be a self-feeder. Often you do this in your need to know, need to grow areas of your life. That's how you become a self-feeder. You become a self-feeder by going, ah, I'm so anxious. The Bible has to speak to this. I have a lot of money. What do I do with it? I don't have any money. What do I, what do? I, do? I have a job. What, 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 what's the work family balance? Is that even a biblical concept? Why am I so depressed? I'm single, what is the, and you just go, these are the pressure points. These are the pain points in my life. These are the need to know, need to grow moments. I'm gonna go to scripture and look at it. That's the first thing. The second thing, if you look at verse three, he says this, verse three. For you are still in the flesh. Now the flesh is not your epidermis. The flesh is not your skin. The flesh is not your body. Your body can be led by the flesh or by the spirit. The flesh is the fallen, broken, sinful, rebellious, ignorant, foolish part of you. It's the worst part of you. It's the part of you that you don't want to tell other people exist. It's the part of you that you, euphemi- you use euphemisms to describe and excuses to, you know, to say why it's not that big of a deal. It says, for you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? Second time he mentions the flesh. And behaving only in a human way. That's interesting. 
walking in the flesh is living only in a human way. Then he says this, for when one says, I follow Paul, or another, I follow Apollos, are you not being, interesting phrase here, merely human? Here's what he's saying. He's basically saying, and this is, I think, why, unfortunately, the church in most cities has so little impact is because the church in most cities is full of mostly immature Christians, real believers. They love Jesus. They understand the gospel. They've been forgiven of their sins. They're headed to heaven. Their, secu- their salvation is secure. Great. But they're immature and they mostly live in the flesh. And notice he says, aren't you acting only human and aren't you acting merely in a human way? Here's what he's basically saying. When you are a immature Christian, you look just like the world, unfortunately. So you look just like all of your classmates. You look just like your coworkers. You look, you look like your father and your grandfather, your mother and your grandmother. It's like, dude, you're no different, unfortunately. And what it, what it basically expresses to people, whether you know it or not, and we don't always mean to express these things, it means something like, hey, Jesus forgives my sin, but he doesn't change my life. That's, and that's kind of what I, because I walk in the flesh, I just, I'm, I, I, yes, Jesus forgave me, but he's not really transforming and changing my life. He's not affecting my marriage. He's not transforming my family. I'm not growing in repentance. I'm not growing in faith. I'm not a more hopeful person. I'm not a transformed and changed person. So the second thing that we have to do if we're gonna be mature, we have to walk in the spirit and not by the flesh. So, I mean, it makes sense. Here's what we say here. We're taught by the word, we're led by the spirit. That's what every Christian is. Taught by the word means we believe in the total truthfulness of scripture. We believe in the objective, fixed word of God. It is, we believe in the 66 books of the Bible and we, they are, we are not over the word, we are under the word. But we believe it's the Holy Spirit. The way that we grow, the Holy Spirit takes the word of God and applies it personally to our lives. So you're reading 1 Peter and it's like, oh, you know, obey the authorities over you. And the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart and says, I'm talking about your boss. I'm talking about the way that you gossip at work about your boss. It's a problem. It's not respectful. I'm talking about the way that you demean your, your professor in your classroom. That's what I'm talking to you about that. It's like, that's what, makes the, that's what makes the word of God real. When the spirit takes it and applies it personally to my life. So what we're supposed to be is Christians are supposed to be, and people get, weird, get scared when you say things like this. Christians are supposed to be spirit-filled. I'm just quoting scripture when I'm saying this. Christians are supposed to be spirit-led. Christians are supposed to be spirit-empowered. Christians are supposed, to be, are supposed to walk by the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? People get freaked out by that. I'm not talking about whether you raise your hands or not. I'm not talking about externally what it looks like. I'm not talking about being weird and eccentric, which is how some people view being spiritual. I'm not talking about that. Here's what it means to walk in the Spirit. Think about it. What does it mean to walk? It means direction and affection. When, what do you do when you go on a walk? We're heading in the same direction and we're talking. That's what it means to walk. We're heading in the same direction and we're talking. And so if you want to be led by the Spirit, you're having a constant conversation with God about his word, asking him to lead you and expecting him to do it. And it it makes Christianity come alive in your life in so many different ways. And at first, it'll feel really unnatural. It's going to be like driving a car, like your hands are on the 10 and 2. I'm super conscious of everything I'm doing. I'm watching. This is awkward. I, I don't know how to do this. And then what happens after you drive him for a couple months or a year or two? All of a sudden, you're getting from work to home. You don't even know how you did it. It becomes natural in your life. So he's saying that, listen, in the Christian, and you know this, is, you know, those of us in here who are Christians, there's an internal civil war going on. That's what's all the time. Between your flesh and your spirit. The question is, who are you going to feed more and who are you going to talk to more? That's who's going to grow. That's who's going to take it over. And what we need is we need spirit-filled people. Spirit-filled Christians. That's what every Christian should be. Everyone talks about having a personal relationship with Jesus. We also need to be thinking about having a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit because that's the one we're supposed to be led by. 
and that's one we're supposed to be walking in. Thirdly, he talks about our relationships. If you'll go back to uh, verse three again, here's what he says. For if you're still in the flesh, while there is jeal- for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not in the flesh, behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So this is interesting, because he says there's a couple places where our immaturity shows up, and we know this. Um, you know, it shows up in that we don't, we're, we're not in the word. We're not growing. It shows that we're walking in the flesh, not in the spirit. But one of the clearest ways that it just shows up, because those things are harder to sometimes for us to measure, and for it to be so evident and obvious. The third place is in our relationships. Do you see that? He's like, look, immature people, it shows up, particularly in how jealous you are of everybody else. A jealous, envious person is an immature Christian. That's what he's saying. Now, it's interesting because he used the word jealous there, but it's really in the, in the Greek, in the original, it's the word envy. Now, there's a little difference. Let me talk about this for a moment. Uh, jealousy and envy are slightly different. Jealousy is, if you have something that I want, I'm jealous that you have it. That's jealousy. I'm jealous that you have that and I don't. Envy is, I don't want you to have it because I can't have it. It's a deeper level. So think about it this way. A kid who is jealous steals another kid's toy. He's jealous. He wants the toy. A deeper level of that, and this is sometimes in our hearts, an envious kid takes the toy, breaks it, because he realizes his parents won't buy him it, and he can't handle his friend having it either. An envious person rejoices when others are weeping because they're weeping. An envious person weeps when others are rejoicing because they're rejoicing. And there's a dark side of all of us with that, right? Have you ever gotten bad news about someone you didn't like? And maybe 10% of you were kind of happy something bad happened to them? He's basically saying this is what's happening in our hearts is we're envious and we're jealous. We're envious, right? We're envious because other people's kids are smarter than ours. They get into better schools and they're better looking and they're more athletic and they're more highly praised. We get jealous because people can go on vacations we can't and afford schools we can't, and their kids get into schools we can't. We're jealous when we're passed over for jobs and other people get them. And Paul's like, guys, this is, this is not how a mature Christian acts. A mature Christian has the ability to rejoice with others who are rejoicing. It's a mark of a Christian. and has an ability to weep with others who are weeping no matter what's going on in our life. And so he tells us how to do this. Look at verse five. He says, what then is Apollos? It's interesting, he, de- he depersonalizes it. He doesn't even say, who is Apollos? He takes one step farther. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? And it's a servant mindset, not a selfish mindset. Do you see this next? Servants. You've got to decide, are you gonna be servant-hearted or selfish? He says, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And then he basically says, look, I planted, that means Paul started the church, and Apollos watered. Apollos came later. He was the second pastor. He was a really good preacher. He was a good discipler. Everyone liked him. And there was a group that said, I love Paul because he was the founder and he started it. And others said, well, actually, Apollos came on. He's actually the better teacher. And he's discipled me a little bit better. So I love him. And Paul says, but God gave the growth. Now, here's the whole idea here. He's saying that in the Christian life, and I won't spend a lot of time on this, there are some people who come at different seasons and stages of your life. And be grateful for the people God brings at every stage. I'll make it real practical for our church. We're a five-year-old church. I mentioned that recently. Um, the other, I'm, you know, I'm a little sentimental sometimes, and I'm, and I'm thinking back on our church, and I'm looking at some pictures, and I'm thinking over the last five years. And I found a picture of our launch team before we launched our church five years ago. And I'm looking at this picture, and I realized half of our launch team is gone. They're not here anymore. They moved, they got married, they got different jobs, they got, they got a residency somewhere else, they transitioned. I mean, it was like, and, it was, and I just thought, well, I'm really grateful 
But half of the people who helped and came and planted aren't here anymore. That's okay. Praise the Lord. God brought them for a season. That's what Paul's saying. Hey, I came and I planted. He says, then others come and they water. He says, but the main thing is God gives the growth. Look what he says in the next verse. He says, so neither he who plants or he who waters is anything. Paul's like, I'm not trying to take any credit. God made me and Christ died for me. Like, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I'm a created finite being. There's a little bit of me and a lot of everything else. That's a good way to think of yourself. <laughs> there's a little bit of me and there's a lot of everything else. Okay, that's good. So he says this, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. He says, but only God who gives the growth. Now, just to be clear, this is what we believe here. We believe that God gives the growth in, in everything, in ministry. That at the end of the day, we, do we love systems here? We do. We do love systems. Do we love strategy? We do. Do we love structure? We do. Do we care about staffing? We do. Do I have a lot of S's? I do. Okay, there's a lot of S's there. But we, but we, care, most about, we care most about the Spirit. It's like the Spirit has to work. We, we believe it's the Holy Spirit who changes people's hearts. We believe it's the Holy Spirit who converts people. We, we, we don't want to manufacture ministry. We don't believe that we can do things synthetically and change. And we genuinely believe this. And this is, this is humility. Humility basically says it was all God, and, but, but in a real way. And let me tell you practically how to do this because some of you are going to be successful in certain domains. Or you already are. But you're going to be successful in certain domains and then people are going to come up to you and they're going to say nice things about you. And there's going to be a temptation to take all the credit. And, and here's a really helpful principle that I've applied in my own life. Uh, always attribute to the situation instead of the self. Always if something goes well. That's the right level of analysis. So, you know, fairly often people will come up to me and, and other of our staff, and they'll say things like, man, I just, you know, this church and this, and they grew fast, and there's so many people, and, that, and it's only been five years, and I can't believe all this change. And, and my response, my natural reflex all the time now is, man, I actually, th thank you for saying that. I'm really humbled. I'm watching it. This is really exciting. I'm, you know, can't believe all this happening. We feel like a, you know, kite in a hurricane kind of thing. And, uh, and, then, and then I say, and let me just be super clear. I actually think that anybody who came with a team like we had to a city like ours, with a church like ours, in a season like this, would have seen the exact same thing happen. Do you see that? The, the right level of analysis, the temptation when people say things about you is to take credit for it. it, it it's, it's, a, it's a moment to try to exalt yourself. It's a moment to try to make people think that you're greater than you are. And so the transition is always to say, attribute to the situation when things go well, always, not to yourself. And that's what, that's what Paul's saying. He's like, look, I, and Paul knew this because Paul would go certain places, he'd preach, everyone would believe. He'd go other places, he'd preach, and everyone would stone him. And so he had this really understanding. I go one place, this happens. I go another place, this happens. I do the same exact thing. God must be the one who gives the growth. God must be the one who changes hearts. So here's what he says next. He says, uh, verse eight, he who plants and he who waters are one. So we're working together. We have different jobs and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. Basically, stop competing and comparing and trying to conquer and start cooperating and collaborating. We, you know, play the hand that you have been dealt. Are you watering? Great. Are you planting? Great. Are you cultivating? Great. Are you pruning? Great. Are you pulling weeds? Great. Wherever you are, that's what you're doing. He says this, why? You are God's field, God's building. So what, what he does is he, he actually makes three illustrations here. He says, first, there's God's family. Don't be an infant, grow up. And then he says, there's God's field. Let's all work together. And then finally, there's God's foundation. Look at verse 10. He says this, according to the grace of God, and we believe here, hopefully you hear me talk about this a lot, we believe a lot in the grace of God. Uh, the grace of God is not a theological concept for us merely. That's far away. The grace of God is something that's felt. It's something that's needed. 
The grace of God is God's goodness toward us in spite of our sin because of Christ. God's grace is not just that which forgives me of my sin, but empowers me and transforms me so I actually live a different life than I would otherwise. So here's what Paul says here. According to the grace of God given to me, and this is amazing, like a skilled master builder. Translation in today's terms, like an amazing general contractor. That's really what he's saying. So he says this, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds. Now, it's interesting because we have to have a category for humble confidence. That's what Paul has, right? So he just said, I'm not anything. And God has to give the growth. But then in verse 10, he says something different that may make us feel uncomfortable. He goes, guys, by the grace of God, I know what I'm doing. By the grace of God, I'm like an awesome general contractor. Now, this makes some people feel uncomfortable when Christians talk confidently on what God has told them to do based on God's word. Right? Like if I got up here and I go, guys, listen, I know what I'm doing. Some of you might go, that sounds arrogant. But if I go, guys, I have no idea what I'm doing, then everyone leaves. <laughs> there, there needs to be a, hey, God's given the blueprint. Scripture's real clear. We're in submission to scripture. But by the grace of God, Paul's saying, I know what I'm doing. He said, God gave me the blueprints. I'm a general contractor. And basically, he's going to basically say, and all of the Christians are Every Christian after me, because Paul had this revelation from God of, of how to build the church, and he wrote it down in scripture. He said, and then the, basically what every Christian is, is working on that construction site. Some of you are plumbers, some of you are electricians, some of you are doing the framing, some of you are doing the sheetrock. Who cares? We're, we're, we're all building this amazing thing. But he says, here's what you need first. He says, first you need a foundation. So look at verse 11. He says, so he says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, we know that foundations are super important, right? That was, unfortunately, the tragedy of the Miami Hotel that happened a few months ago. You see something like that happen, and, and we don't know always every detail right away, but the, the first thought that almost everyone has once we got the details is foundational issue. Right? We know how important foundations are. And what Paul is saying is that there's no foundation that can be laid except for Jesus Christ. So let me say this. If, we, if this has not been clear in the last five years, and for, if for some reason it hasn't been clear in the last three weeks we've been in this series, uh, we believe that Jesus is the foundation, the basement, and the bottom of everything here, always. So you go over to the kids' building, some of you drop your kids off, you walk in there, the first thing you'll see is meet Jesus, make friends. It's like, well, it's all about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the hero. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is treasure. We worship Jesus. We love Jesus. Discipleship is following Jesus, helping others follow Jesus. And what Paul's saying is if Jesus isn't at the basement and the bottom of everything, everything's gonna collapse and everything's gonna fall apart in your life. And listen, we know that there's a lot of temptation for everything else to be the foundation of a person's life. Let me tell you the two most popular things people put as the foundation of their lives, their kids. Many people have a kid-centered or child-centered home, not a Christ-centered home. They do. And so what happens? When the, kid, the youngest kid goes off to college, the marriage falls apart. Why? Because they had a kid-centered home, not a Christ-centered home. So then, you know, they would get, a lot of times they live separate lives or they get divorced or they ask their kids to get married and give them grandkids so they can have that idol again. I'd like, more, I'd like to have a child-centered home again, please. Can you give me grandkids as soon as possible? Others have a career-centered home. Okay, I will sacrifice everything for my career, including you and our marriage and my personal health and our family. I will travel way more than I need to. I will, take, I will take promotions I shouldn't be taking. I will do all of this because we don't have a Christ-centered home. We have a career-centered home. 
Churches can put a lot of things on the basement and the bottom of the churches. Style of worship, programs, a pastor, God forbid, a building. And that becomes the foundation and center of everything. And so what he's saying is there's no other foundation that can be laid. And we understand this, but we understand the importance of foundation. If you're teaching somebody math, what do you say? You need a good foundation. What do you mean? You got to know your numbers. You got to know math. You got to know, you know, basic multiplication tables. If we say you need a good foundation um, with language arts, it's like, well, we know what we mean. Know your alphabet. We, you know, no basic word structure, no basic grammar. You need, everything builds on that foundation. Paul's saying there's a foundation. Here's what he's saying. This is kind of where we're going to camp out just for a few more minutes here. He's saying that the average Christian, at least in Corinth, and maybe I would say in Winston-Salem, God forbid it, two cities, but maybe. He said the average Christian has Christ as their foundation, but not a Christian framework. So they've got the right foundation, but all of the framing on the house is cheap. I'll show you. Look what he says here. Verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones. So he's basically saying, so you've got a foundation, but then you've got to build on that foundation. He said, you could, you could do it with gold, silver, and precious stones. So that would be really, really good, costly materials. That's granite. That's hardwood floors. Okay? This is, this is high ceilings. This is, this, is like the, this, is the, this is not builder grade. This is like, you're building this to live in here for a long time. He's like, this would be really costly. He says, but then other people, he, he says, they use wood, hay, and straw. Now, why does he say wood, hay, and straw? Is it because he was reading The Three Little Pigs? No. Wood, hay, and straw, they were cheap. They were easy to find. Here's what he's saying. What most Christians do is they have Christ as their foundation, but then the, how they actually build on that with the rest of their life, their day-to-day activities, their actual Christian worldview, the raising of their family, the going to work, the handling of their money, basically everything else, they're very, very worldly. And basically, the number one reason you would do hay and, and, and wood and, and straw versus the precious metals is because it's so much easier. That's the number one reason you would do that instead, right? I mean, it's a good thing to know that for most of us, what we're probably doing, what you're probably doing, is doing what's easiest in your life. The chance that in most areas of your life, you're taking the path of least resistance is almost 100%. Why would you do anything else? I mean, you, you would have to be thinking biblically. You would have to be repenting of sin. You would be, have to intentionally be applying to the gospel to choose humility over pride, to choose generosity over stinginess, to choose being other-centered versus self-centered, to fear God and not fear man. It's like most of us are building on the wrong framework. We've got the right foundation. We're building with the wrong framework. And he said it's going to be revealed. It's going to see how cheap it all is. Here's what he says. Look at this. This is amazing. I want you to understand that what Paul did was he, he wrote in such a way that the common man and the common woman could understand. And so he, this illustration is amazing. Here's what he basically says. You're building a building. It's like, well, I get that. I'm the general contractor. Well, that makes sense. And then he's going to basically say, and Jesus is the final inspector. Now, if you've ever had your house redone or you've ever been working on something, everybody's afraid of the final inspector. Every general contractor is like, I don't know. I mean, when's he getting here? He's going to be, how long will he be here? He's going to walk through everything. Well, let me show you. So this, each one's work will become manifest for the day. That's the day of final inspection. That's the day of judgment. We'll disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Okay, so there's going to be a final inspection. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he receives a reward. This is interesting. He's talking about the receiving of rewards in Corinth. Do you know what started in Corinth? The Olympics. Do you know who created the three-tiered system where you've got the gold and the silver and the bronze? Corinth. So the idea of different rewards based on faithfulness, based on fruitfulness in your life, multiple people get rewarded but not everyone gets the same reward, 
Very biblical idea flows right out of the Olympics. For, uh, Paul's applying that worldview to them. So then he says this, if anyone's work is burned up, so basically this is an interesting illustration. Jesus basically goes, I light your house on fire. That's what he's saying. I light it on fire. And I see, did you build it with precious stones, silver, gold? They won't burn. Or did you build it with wood, hay, and straw? Because it's going to burn. And he says this, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. In other words, there are many people who will at the end of the day go, I wasted my life. I'm going to heaven, but I help no one get to heaven. I'm going to heaven, but I'm taking no one with me. I had one life in a few decades and I completely wasted it. He says this, here's what it'll be like. He will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. Okay, how? But only as through fire. Now this is interesting. Basically what he says is the final judgment for many Christians, they're gonna go to heaven. But the image, this is such a powerful image. It shocks you almost. He said, the image of going to heaven for many Christians who have the foundation of Christ but no framework that's good is like escaping a burning house. That's literally what he's saying. You're going to escape. You're gonna be okay. You're not going to die. You're going to escape from a burning house. How many of you go, that's not what I want? I don't want that experience. I don't want that story. I'm not looking forward to that. I'm glad I'm not gonna die, but I don't want the story of my life to be, I barely escaped a burning house and now I'm in heaven. And so Paul says, that's not the story you wanna know. That's not the story you wanna live. So I'm telling you this. And then he ends with this. He reminds us what we're building. He says this, do you not know that you are God's temple? So, I mean, that doesn't mean a lot to us. To the Jews, that was everything. That's sacred, that's significant, that's special. That's the place where God's glory and his manifold felt presence dwelt. That's the, that's, he goes, so that's what you're building. In fact, you're not just building it, you are that. Do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So what he's saying is the, the goal of life, and this is hard for Americans to hear, the goal of life is not self-fulfillment. The goal of life is not self-actualization, whatever that means. The goal of life is not self-expression. The goal of life is life with God. That's what, that's what the temple represents. The goal of life is I worship God. I enjoy him forever. You know, all the old confessions, what's the purpose of, God? What's the purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's it. That's the purpose of my life. And I don't earn my salvation, but I can do a lot to enjoy my salvation. If I'm in the word, I'm walking by the spirit, I'm repenting of my sin, I'm enjoying my salvation. But he said this, look at verse 18. He knows what's gonna happen, right? He knows... I can't, you know, this is, I can't, I don't know what you're thinking, but he, he Paul, Paul writes this, let no one deceive himself because everyone wants to think I'm more mature. So Paul's like, all right, I'm, I'm saying all this and some of you are gonna go, I'm mature. I, no, I get it, I make a lot of money, I'm mature. You can't be immature and make as much money as I make. It's impossible. You can't be mature and have gone to the schools that I went to and do the job that I do. By the way, this is why it's so hard to reach rich people, which is most Americans because they think I've been successful in this life. Don't tell me that if I'm successful in this life, I won't be okay in the next life. Don't tell me that I'm building this house with the wrong materials. To be self-deceived is I do not see myself rightly. That's what it means. I'm in a, you know, we walk in this one of those, you know, mirror houses and this mirror, you know, house of mirrors and you look, you look fat in this one, you look thin in this one, you got a big head in this one. Basically, here's what we know about humans. Humans see what they wanna see. And you can't see yourself or know yourself by yourself. So here's what he says. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone, so this is a temptation for anyone. If anyone thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise 
that they are futile. So he's basically saying there's a great temptation in our lives towards self-deception. And I just want to call it out right now. Some of you are completely self-deceived. You, you are. Here, let me tell you how you do it. Let me just call it out. You compare yourself to other infants in Christ and you think you're okay because there's other people around you who are just as immature and they need to grow up too, but you keep comparing yourself to them. Some of you are self-deceived because you've learned how to use the language and lingo of Christianity instead of repenting. And you've learned to say you're struggling with sin when you're just giving into it. And you've learned to say you're praying about things when you're not. And you've learned to say you're trusting God when you're mad at him. Stop it. It's self-deceived. Some of you are struggling with the exact same sins and you keep telling yourself it's no big deal. You tell yourself things are no big deal that are massive deals. You tell yourself you're okay when you're definitely not okay. Some of you in your marriage, you're struggling with the exact same things your friends worried, wor uh, warned you about while you were dating. And now it's five years into marriage and you're struggling with the exact same things. Some of you know no more Bible than you knew five years ago, none. Some of you use prayer as an excuse to not act. This is not okay. And he, listen, the cross confronts us. This is the beautiful thing about the cross. The cross confronts our self-deception. You can't look at the cross and go, nothing's wrong with me. You can't look at the cross and say, the sin is not a big deal. You can't look at the cross and say, I need a life coach. I'm a mistaker. You look at the cross and go, I'm a sinner who needs to be saved. I'm a rebel who needs to be rescued. That's what the cross tells me. And so Paul ends with this great encouragement. I want to read it to you. Paul, remember, it's time to grow up, but it takes time to grow up. Look what Paul says in verses 21 to 23. He gives us, most of us have way too little view of Christ, the cross, and what it accomplished. I want you to see verse 21. He says this, so let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. All things, Paul? All things? He's like, guys, your soul has shrunk to the size of your own little world. Your soul has shrunk to the size of the next Netflix episode. Your soul has shrunk to the size of your next vacation. Yikes. He says, look guys, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. Well, how are they all mine? Well, Christ died for all of them. That's how they're all. They're all sinners who need God's grace. That's how, they, that's how they're all yours. Okay, then he says, or the, how about these categories? Or the world. It's like, what about the world? Well, the Bible says that somehow, I don't understand it. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is, the cross of Christ has massive implications. He says this, or life or death. What did the cross have to deal with? Nothing major, just life and just death. And then he says this, or the present or the future. The cross deals with your present and secures your future. Listen, you can't control your past. You can't change your past. You can't control your future. We trust in Christ. Here's what he says. All are yours. Why? Because you are Christ and Christ is God. The cross of Christ is so massive. Christ crucified for sinners forgives us of all of our immaturities. We have a lot of things to repent of. It, it forgives us for remaining infants when we should have grown up. And it gives us all of the grace that we need to grow up. All of it. That, Christ bought it. Why do you and I get grace to grow up? Because Christ died for it. That's it. Most of us need to make a commitment today to grow up. Others of us, this sermon hasn't been for you at all because you're not a believer. The call for you is to become an infant in Christ and then grow up. 
The call for you is don't worry about any framework. You've got to build the foundation. We want to be the type of church that where people come, they can build that foundation and we can grow up together. Guys, it's time to grow up and it takes time to grow up. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the men and women here. Thank you for a clear message, Lord. Lord, there are two types of Christians and I pray that we would be the type that repents, the type that grows, the type that changes, the type that applies the good news of the gospel to every inch in every area of our lives, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow up, Lord. It's never too late. Lord, I know that's a process. We've got to move from infant to toddler to adolescent to teenager to adult. Lord, give us so much grace, Lord. You've given us the church to help us grow up together, Lord. Strengthen our church. Raise up in this church spiritual men and spiritual women who can preach the gospel to this city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.